Before I started uh, training uh, as a pastor here at the chapel, I worked for the, uh, or worked in the complaints industry for about 10 years. And when I say industry, uh, I really mean an industry. Uh, here in Scotland, uh, people want to complain about anything and they want to complain about everything. Uh, we may not be able to, uh, to go to the Football World Cup this year, but if there was a World Cup uh, of complaining, then Scotland would certainly be contenders uh, every year. <laughs> if there's one thing that uh, I know about complaints, it's that people hardly ever go away uh, after you answer their complaint. More often than not, the answer that you give uh, kind of provokes other thoughts uh, in their mind, sparks off other thoughts, and they come back to you uh, with yet another complaint. In fact, it's built into the complaint systems of most organizations. Uh, most organizations that you complain to have one or two or three uh, steps in their complaints procedure. They anticipate that you're going to come back to complain further. I know this as a father too. Uh, unless my children get the exact answer that they're looking for, there is usually a comeback of some sort. And this is the case with the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Uh, first time around, uh, we saw that Habakkuk complained to God. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? All these wicked people in Judah uh, were getting away with their wickedness in Habakkuk's eyes. But then God answered Habakkuk's complaint by saying, Judah isn't going to get away with her wickedness. And he says that he's going to raise up Babylon an even more wicked nation in order to judge Judah. And tonight we're going to see that Habakkuk is not satisfied with God's answer. In fact, he's very perplexed by it. And so he comes back to God with another complaint. But what is this complaint that Habakkuk brings for a second time? Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. And we're going to read down to verse 20 of chapter 2. That's page 940 in the church Bibles. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his dragnet and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. 
it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they get drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to a lifeless stone. Wake up! Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. So what is Habakkuk's new complaint? Well, the key verse is there down in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can tolerate no wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk's complaint has got two parts. And the first is that the treacherous are tolerated. After God's answer to his first complaint, Habakkuk accepts that God doesn't tolerate wrongdoing. We just read that in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So Habakkuk's complaint has changed a little bit. It's evolved because that's not what he said back last week, where he said that in verse 3, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? So his complaint has moved on a little bit. His complaint is now why do you tolerate the treacherous? Or to put it another way, you can't tolerate wrongdoing, why then do you tolerate wrongdoers? You can't tolerate wickedness, why then do you uh, tolerate wicked people? 
It's a big question, isn't it? Habakkuk's cry to God is something like this. God, I've been crying out to you for a long time to help me, and it seemed like you weren't listening. It looked to me like you were tolerating wrongdoing, but you've told me now that you've, you, you don't. You told me that you're going to do something amazing about the wicked people in my country. You told me that you're going to raise up Babylonians to do this, though. And I can't make sense of this. You are my God. You are my holy one. You're my rock. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing, so why are you tolerating evil Babylon? Do you understand uh, what Habakkuk is saying? He's saying, God, you're a holy God. You're a pure God. You cannot look on evil. How can you tolerate evildoers then? He, He seems to struggle to understand how God's actions fit with God's character. And what Habakkuk is articulating here is something that we call the problem of evil. And it's something that every Christian will wrestle with at some point. How can God use evil when verse 13 tells us that he's too pure to look on evil? I mean, it's natural to believe that God is in control of all the good things that happen in the world. After all, God is good. That's what the Bible tells us. So when good things happen, it's clear that God has been in control of those things. And what sometimes it's hard to make sense of is that God is just as much in control of evil things as he is of good things. This is foundational to the Bible's teaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses teaches the children of Israel uh, a song a song before the end of the promised land, and it goes like this. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. God is wanting to make clear here that he is the only true God, and then he tells the people what he can do. He's responsible for life, and he's responsible for death. He's responsible for healing, and he's responsible for wounding. In fact, God's control is so comprehensive that no one can stand against him. You'll find similar verses in the story of Hannah, and you'll find similar verses in Isaiah when God says again that he is the Lord and there is no other. He says, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. So the true God is in total control, total control of all things, things that are good and things that are evil. This is exactly what the Bible uh, teaches us. But that raises another question, doesn't it? Is God then partly bad? And the answer to that is firmly no. There's enough uh, enough parts of the Bible to show us that God is fully good. And you can maybe look these up uh, when you get home. Spend some time thinking about Isaiah 45, uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1, and uh, Psalm 5. These, those would be good passages to go to uh, just to affirm that God is fully good. He is fully good even though he controls everything that is evil as well as everything that is good. And the word that is often used, we, we heard this this morning when Andy was preaching about suffering and, and, and discipline, the word that God uses to say that he rules over all things is the word sovereignty. Now the teaching of God's sovereignty, again, is amazing how this kind of parallels with this morning. The teaching of God's sovereignty 
is one of the hardest things for us to get our heads around. We have to acknowledge, though, uh, what the Bible says, even if our minds are going to take some time to catch up. Even if we can't quite figure it out, we need to take God's word uh, as it is presented to us. The truth is, uh, you don't want a God who's not in control uh, of everything. A God who's not in control of everything cannot complete the plan that he has for this world. And that's not a proper God at all. Uh, That's a small God. Uh, That's a weak God. That's a fake God. It's the kind of God, if that's the kind of God we have, then every evil thing that we experience will serve no good purpose. And yet our God says that he does all things uh, for our good. The place that we see God use evil most particularly is at the cross of Christ, where Jesus uh, was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And the, the, the crowd, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. So there we see God's deliberate plan, but we also see the wickedness of people. God works through evil people, and he judges the world through evil people. And that's what we're seeing so far with the Babylonians uh, as we look at Habakkuk together. The second part of Habakkuk's complaint is that the more righteous are swallowed up. We see that at the end of verse 13. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk's complaint is not just that God is tolerating the treacherous. His complaint goes much further than that. He's saying here that by tolerating the treacherous, God is allowing the more righteous to be swallowed up. In other words, God's allowing them to be destroyed. Habakkuk doesn't have a problem with God dealing with the wicked people in Judah. That is, after all, what he was crying out to God for in verses 1 to 4. But maybe he thought God was going to bring revival again, like he saw under the rule of King Josiah. Maybe he thought God would turn his people back to his word and have a renewed hunger for it. But that's not how God is going to deal with the people here. You've appointed them to execute judgment? You've ordained them to punish Judah? God, as we said last week, is going to punish this bad nation with a worse one. And that's what Habakkuk can't make sense of. He knows his people are wicked, but they're not as wicked as Babylon. How can God tolerate these people? More than that, how can he allow them to inflict such destruction on his people? We see exactly, in very uh, vivid terms, what Babylon is going to do in verses 14 to 17. Babylon is portrayed as this wicked fisherman, and the people of Judah are like helpless fish, getting hooked and gathered in the nets. It's a horrible picture of how wicked the Babylonians were. I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like this in the Old Testament, I just assume that it's, that it's imagery or poetry or some kind of metaphor. And yet, if you look at some of the artwork covering this period, you soon realize this is not poetic language. It's not a metaphor. Evil nations like the Babylonians and the Assyrians really did drag their victims away with hooks in their bottom lip, off into exile. It's horrible stuff. That gives you a sense of how wicked the Babylonians were. And to make matters worse, 
In verse 16, because of their big haul, they then make sacrifices to their false gods. Again, another horrible picture of how wicked these people were. And notice in verse 17, Habakkuk repeats his question from verse 13, just in a slightly different way. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroy nations without mercy? In other words, God, are you going to keep on allowing Babylon to mercilessly destroy these people? Are you not going to step in here? God was right uh, back in verse 5 uh, that Habakkuk would be utterly amazed by how he was going to act, but it was not in a good way. Habakkuk is at a loss to understand what God is doing here and how it fits with God's pure character and his hatred of evil. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk climbs onto the ramparts, stands at his watch, and looks to see what God is going to say to him. He's got everything off his chest now, and he stands there in silence, waiting to listen to the answer that God is going to provide. And I've I've spent time this week uh, thinking about Habakkuk's uh, complaint. I have to tell you that I think this is a great example of how to speak to God. This is exactly how we should bring our concerns to God. It's exactly how to pray when you don't understand what God is doing. I can't think of a better way to put it. So I've said that this is essentially, this prayer is basically like a, a faith sandwich. Habakkuk's complaint is like the filling in the middle. On either side of that, Habakkuk shows his faith in his God. Let me show you exactly what I mean. Habakkuk starts by affirming what he knows to be true about God, that he is everlasting, verse 12. He affirms his personal relationship with God, my God, my Holy One. He calls him Lord, the covenant name of God. He calls him my rock, God is his safe place. God is his place to run to in times of trouble. In these different ways, Habakkuk is stating things that he knows to be true about God, even when his experience is telling him something different. This is the stuff that in the cold light of day, Habakkuk knows to be true about God. He doesn't start with the stuff that he doesn't understand. He starts with the things that he knows are true. He doesn't start with complaining to God. He starts by adoring God. He doesn't start with what God's doing. He starts with who God is. This is how to approach God. Whether you're on cloud nine and everything is going well for you, or whether you're walking through the dark valley where you don't understand what's happening and you cannot see a way out, this is how we approach God. The filling in this prayer sandwich is Habakkuk's complaint. And like his first complaint, it's blunt, it's bold, it's honest yet reverent, and it's full of questions. He's pleading with God. And God is big enough for Habakkuk's questions. He doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for these blunt and honest questions. He is big enough for Habakkuk's questions, and he's big enough for yours and mine. And when Habakkuk has finished speaking, He completes his faith sandwich, not with more affirmations of who God is, but with silence. He shuts his mouth and he waits on God. 
I don't know if anyone's ever uh, taken the time to teach you how to pray in the midst of trials and troubles. Well, let our friend Habakkuk teach you. Take Habakkuk's lead and praise God for who he is. Plead with God about what you don't understand and patiently wait for him to answer. This is how Habakkuk went about his second complaint. But how did God answer him? Let's look at chapter 2, verse 2 to 20. Notice that in chapter 2, verse 2, God tells Habakkuk to write down what he's about to say. To write down the revelation on tablets. This was no doubt so that it could be kept as an encouragement because as chapter 2, verse 3 says, there was going to be a bit of a waiting period before the revelation would be fulfilled. But what is this revelation about? Well, it's a revelation about these wicked and oppressive Babylonians. More specifically, this revelation teaches us that the treacherous will be punished. In verses 4 to 20, God shows Habakkuk that his big concern in verses 1 to 13 about God tolerating treacherousness uh, has, has nothing to it. It's an absolute empty claim. God is not going to tolerate the treacherous. Verses 4 to 5 describe uh, the Babylonians' wicked ways. They're puffed up. Uh, they've got wrongful desires. They're arrogant and greedy. They're never satisfied. They take people captive. And would you notice with me how unlike the righteous people they are in verse 4? The Babylonians are arrogant confident in themselves. The righteous have faith. Their confidence is in God. We'll come back to the righteous people uh, or the righteous person shortly, but let's, let's stick with uh, these wicked Babylonians. What we have after verse 4, four uh, and 5 is uh, a section that runs from verse 6 to verse 20, which is basically five illustrations of what puffed up Babylon is like. And it's set in the form of five woes that they're going to suffer. I've just finished um, the second year at Edinburgh Theological Seminary, and one of the great things about having exams out the way uh, and not having lectures is that I get to take my little boy to school. And from time to time in the playground, you hear the age-old uh, taunt, na, 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 na. And uh, it's really great to see that nothing has changed in the past 30 years since I was at primary school. Na 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 is the internationally recognized way to taunt someone. And verses 6 to 20 are a bit of a na 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 moment. As the nations Babylon has persecuted taunt and ridicule Babylon. The woes, each of them state an accusation against Babylon and then there's some kind of judgment that's announced on Babylon. So let's fly through them really quickly. In the first woe, uh, in verse 6 to 8, Babylon is accused of theft, of taking stolen goods, uh, of extortion, of plundering nations. And the judgment is there in verse 8 that Babylon is herself going to get plundered. The second woe that Babylon is accused of is of building an empire by unjust gain. And the judgment there in verse 10 is shame and them forfeiting their life. The third woe is in verse 12, and it's to do with Babylon's self-promotion, which she's achieved by her bloodshed. And the judgment is there for us to see in verse 13. And it's that a civilization built on destruction will itself be destroyed. And how true that would be of Babylon. 
Babylon is nothing in this day and age. It's not on the UN Security Council. It doesn't have a seat at the G8 summit. It's basically a tourist attraction now. It's a playground for archaeologists. The fourth woe is in verse 15, and it's about how Babylon degraded their enemies, and the judgment on them is that they would be the ones now to experience disgrace and shame. Finally, the fifth woe is in verses 18 and 19, which saw Babylon condemned for their worship of man-made idols that can't speak or teach and therefore can't be trusted. And the contrast is there in verse 20, where we see the Lord God in his holy temple ruling and judging in his sovereign power. The Lord God who can speak and who wants what he says written down on tablets to be heralded and preserved. These are the five woes, and they serve as God's judgment on Babylon. The treacherous would indeed be punished. And these five woes are comprehensive. You see, history tells us that Babylon would be destroyed by the Persians and God's people would return to the promised land. You see, as God destroys empires, whether that's the Babylonian one, the Assyrian one, Persians, Greeks, even the British, he's community, communicating a message about how futile it is for us to build empires which are meant to last forever, but that can be over and fold like a pack of cards. It's also meant to teach us something about how God judges the world and how he will judge all people when the Lord Jesus Christ returns someday. He's declaring that he is the only majestic and all-powerful God, and that opposing him is going to end in failure. Worshiping other gods will end in failure. Now, I'd be surprised if there was anybody here tonight uh, who worships bits of wood uh, or stone, like in verse 19. I can't imagine that there's anybody here who's asked a bit of stone for some guidance. But I do imagine that there's people here tonight who are not ready for Jesus' return. People who are puffed up, confident in themselves. People who are living for themselves and the stuff that this world has to offer. Not interested in God at this point. And I need to tell you that the, the judgment for you is the same as the judgment that the Babylonians experienced. That's what lies ahead. One day all idolatry will be judged and all idols will be destroyed. God hasn't changed. All this stuff you hear people say about, you know, the God of the Old Testament being an angry God, but the God of the New Testament being a bit more soft since Jesus came, that is nonsense. God does not share his glory with anyone else. He never has done and he never will. You see, one day, as verse 14 tells us, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You might think that you can ignore God now, but you won't be able to ignore him on that day, and you will face his wrath and his judgment. And it would be wrong of me to stand here and to say anything other than that, or to avoid saying it altogether. You can do something about that Tonight, you don't have to face the same judgment that the Babylonians finished, uh, experienced. If you confess the wrong sins, the uh, wrong things that you've done, the things that the Bible calls sin, uh, if you admit that you are helpless to save yourself, uh, 
uh, that you need the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse you from your sin and that you need him to help you live for him for the rest of your life, then you can be saved. You don't have to face God's judgment or face his wrath. As we were thinking about this morning though, it's not a walk in the park, the Christian life. It's the same for Habakkuk. He was a lone voice in his day and age. And it can feel like that today as a Christian in Scotland. It's costly to follow Jesus. You can lose your reputation and your relationships and your riches. But it is worth it. It is also worth it. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, if you cling to your life, you will use it. It will lose it. But if you give up your life for him, you will find it. Well, in amongst all the punishment of chapter 2, verse 4 to 20, eight words shine out from verse 4. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. This is another key part of God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint. And it's something that's central to the Christian message. We see it quoted at various points in the New Testament, as we heard when Ewan read for us earlier this evening. Notice, firstly, that there aren't many righteous people around in this book of Habakkuk. There's none in Babylon. And there's very few in Judah, just the ones who are hemmed in by the wicked back in chapter 1, verse 1. Notice, secondly, uh, there might be a note at the bottom of your page in your Bible that some translations say, by faith, rather than by his faithfulness. We don't need to lose uh, any sleep over this. Faith implies obedient commitment to God, and faithfulness describes the Christian state of consistently being full of faith. Either way, what's not been described is the situation where people describe a one-off event back in 19-something or other, where they prayed a prayer or walked down an aisle. No, what has been described here is a constant trusting in the promises of God. Of course, having faith means putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, but we're also called to live by faith every single day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So let us fix our eyes on, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So let me ask you, uh, my Christian brother and sister, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation today? Is your hope still in God today? In other words, are you living a life of faith today, this evening? Is that what you're doing? It's an act of faith to keep believing uh, that we have a good God who is running this world well. Despite all the news we hear, which threatens to pull down our faith. I don't know if you know this, but Monday was the deadliest day in Gaza since 2014, 16 Palestinians killed by Israeli forces. Another high school shooting in the US on Friday and 100 people dying in a plane crash in Cuba. 
it is an act of faith to keep believing that we have a good God who runs this world well despite appearances. God says that the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. To not just believe that you're saved, but to believe that Jesus is building his church. Despite all the scandals in the church, despite major denominations like the Church of Scotland and the Episcopal Church rejecting the word of God and its teaching, despite the increasing secularization of Scotland, despite our country being so seemingly unresponsive to the gospel, we're called to exercise faith that God's great gospel plan will be accomplished. That's what the righteous do. They live by faith. It's not easy though, is it? And yet we're called to this costly, consistent, enduring faith in God, despite appearances, despite how weak the church looks, despite what's going on in our lives and our families and our church and our world. But let me tell you, that as a Christian, there's no other way to live. We have to live by what is unseen rather than what is seen. If you live by what you see, then you'll just lose heart. The only way to endure is to live by what is unseen. But what does living by faith actually look like? Here's a wee checklist that might be helpful for you. Are you living by what it says in God's word, the Bible, even though the people around you think it's at worst um, abhorrent or at best out of date, particularly when it's teaching about relationships and sexuality? Are you dying to sin every day and living to righteousness? Is the fruit of the Spirit growing in you more and more each day, even, even in small ways? And are you living by what is unseen rather than what is seen? These things will happen increasingly if we're living by faith. I said a few moments ago that the phrase, the righteous will live by faith, is quoted at various points throughout the New Testament. I'm not going to uh, go through all of them, but I want to just pick one example from Hebrews, because that's what we're doing in the Sunday morning series, and it will hopefully be familiar to you. When Hebrews 10 talks about the righteous living by faith, it comes at a point when the writer is calling the people to persevere and not to shrink back in the face of persecution. Their words written for a time of waiting for the day of God's judgment to come. For a time when God's people are increasingly tempted to become like the world round about them. For a time of not always seeing clearly what God is doing. I wonder, does that not accurately describe our time? Do we not need the same encouragement to live by faith today? A costly, consistent, enduring faith in God, despite what the world looks like round about us. A faith in God's promises and his plan to call a, to himself a, a nation, for, uh, sorry, a people from every nation and every tribe and any, every people and every language. And as you look at chapter 2 verse 4, I wonder which, which person are you? Are you this righteous person? Not righteous because of anything you've done, but having been made righteous because you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. The righteous will live by faith and the unrighteous will be destroyed because of their arrogance. 
I trust that you're living by faith today. And if you're not, that you do something about it tonight. Let's pray.